war. Uh, war, in some ways, perhaps, is the greatest manifestation, greatest demonstration of the depravity of man, the horror of war, the agony, the tragedy, the separation, the uh, taking away of children from parents and of husbands from wives. At the same time, war, under God's common mercy, sometimes even brings out the best. Even unsaved men, unsaved women, do acts of great heroism, great self-sacrifice. Um, if you here last weekend, I used a foxhole illustration of the heroic act of a soldier falling on a hand grenade in the foxhole to save his fellow soldiers. And then the illustration I used was that Jesus, in a sense, fell on a grenade in an enemy's foxhole to save the lives of his enemies. Um, it's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, beloved, what we have in our text this morning, our passage this morning, is Hebrews 11, verses 29 through 31. And this is a picture of faith in combat. Three times we see that phrase that indicates there's this tremendous vignette of wisdom from God about the faith that saves by faith. Three times we see three different situations, or really two different situations with two applications on the second one, each time, each verse, by faith, by faith, all in the context of war, all in the context of combat. Because true faith demonstrates, true saving faith demonstrates courage in the face of opposition. True faith doesn't shrink back. It doesn't drift away. It doesn't neglect so great a salvation. It doesn't collapse, fold up, doesn't quit. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 through 31, the passage that God has for us here this morning. This is the word of God, Hebrews 11 and verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This is indeed the word of God that's been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, some disclosure. This week as I was studying, I had just a growing sense of excitement about these verses, about these Old Testament narratives. I was very excited, but... I, the, an outline was kind of eluding me because when you look at these three verses, you could slice it and dice it in various different ways. You could talk about faith out of Egypt in the first verse and then faith in Jericho in the latter two verses. Uh, the first two are corporate faith, the first time in this Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews, and then the last one goes back to individual faith. Uh, the first two is corporate faith, the last one's individual faith, and also the first two are, in a sense, where God's people are commanded to march forward, and then the last verse is where God's person is commanded to bunker down. There are two generations here, two post-Moses generations, the wilderness wandering generation and the wall wrecking generation, if I may. 
But what we're going to do here this morning is we'll just take the text at face value. We'll take the threefold outline God gives us in the three verses, by faith, by faith, by faith. And by the way, it's the last appearance of by faith in verse 31 as it would apply to an individual or to a specific a group of people in the sense of where the verse begins with those two words, by faith. And the three faiths, beloved, that we see represented in these three incredible stories are a meager faith, a courageous faith, and a shocking faith. And the intent that God had for the original audience, that the author, this brilliant Hebrew author, clearly in my mind as I go through this book, there's no way this book was written by a Gentile. This was written by a brilliant Hebrew believer, by a pastor, author, uh, preacher, that he wrote for that original audience of Hebrew Christians that they would live by faith, walk by faith, pray by faith, and even serve by faith. And I think the intent would be the same for you and for me some 2,000 years later. And this is all part of the great holy war, all part of the great battle between faith and unbelief. Faith is a necessity. It's not an optional extra. A faith is understanding, agreeing, and committing. Faith obeys, faith waits, faith rejoices. And we might be very familiar with Hebrews 11 and even all these stories from our childhood, but Hebrews 11 is not a chapter to be flannel-graphed. Hebrews 11 is here to teach salvation by faith alone in certainly the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. That was part of the author's original intent for that group of Jewish believers that were being pulled back and drawn back to the old, even sacrificial system. It's a faith that perseveres, works, trusts, and obeys, as we've already seen at some level up to this point. So let's look at the first faith, the first example of saving faith in verse 29, namely a meager faith. It's a meager faith that rescues. You're probably familiar with the illustration Jesus said, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the promised land at that time, you could move mountains even with a small amount of faith. And the example we see here in verse 29 is indeed a very meager faith when we understand the backdrop. Verse 29, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. This is, by the way, the first time that we see the word they after by faith, all the way up through the previous 28 verses with the example starting with Abel, all the way up through Moses. They were individual people. This is where it moves for two verses from individual faith to corporate faith from individual faith to corporate faith. But this, of course, records the story back in Exodus chapter 14, if you want to turn back there for a moment. Israel had been taken into captivity in the land of Egypt, and they were there for 400-plus years, and they were there under the iron fist of the Egyptian taskmasters. God used Moses to rescue the nation, the nation that is the apple of God's eye from their captivity in Egypt. And we talked about that even last time we were in Hebrews about Moses. And what happened was after God had poured out the ten plagues on 
it, on uh, Egypt, culminating with the final, the worst plague, where the angel of death went and struck down the firstborn of all of Egypt, all the firstborn sons and all the firstborn animals, except and anyone in the land, except for those who observed the Passover and had the Passover lamb sacrifice and put the blood on their lintel. And then the angel of death passed over them in the first observation of the Passover. And as a result of that, uh, Pharaoh allowed Egypt to go. This is after many times Moses had said at the command of God to Pharaoh, let my people go. But we'll pick it up in verse 10 of Exodus 14. And basically they are leaving, they've left, Pharaoh let them go, and then Pharaoh became angry and he realized, and people came to him and he realized that his firstborn son himself had died. So he sends a mighty army after the nation of Israel as God was leading them. And they find themselves up against the Red Sea, Exodus 14, verse 10. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they, that would be Israel, became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So we hear that, and at some level we might wonder, how, how could they do that? They just saw the miraculous pouring out of God's wrath on Egypt, especially, again, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And there was the supernatural nature of the selectivity of all of those plagues on Egypt and sparing Israel, and even sparing the beasts of Israel. So they've seen firsthand the mighty hand of God on their behalf. They've been taught by Moses what God had promised all the way back to Abraham and then reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob and even Joseph. And they are cowering in fear and they're complaining. And by the way, some of the very people that are cowering in fear and are complaining are carrying Joseph's bones. Yet this is their response. Certainly, uh, the Egyptians are incredibly angry, incredibly fearsome. This mighty Egyptian army, every single soldier had an older brother that died in that 10th plague. If any of them had sons, their son died. So they do have blood in their eyes. These Israelites are going to pay. And God in his sovereignty basically places a nation, we could say proverbially speaking, between a rock and a hard place. In front of them is the impassable Red Sea. On the left is a great mountain range. On the right is a desert that they would die if they would go in there. And behind them is the Egyptian army, the mighty Egyptian army. So what are they going to do? And again, they cower in fear and complaint. The commentator Newell said in the context of how the people are feeling at this point of time, I like what he said. He said, quote, no plague of our hearts is more pernicious than the placing of feeling before faith. You see, they were placing their fear and their feeling before their faith, before their belief. But as the author of Hebrews applies this, we know as a story goes on that these people, though they are 
faltering, stumbling, argumentative, but they are trusting. They have a tiny little microscopic mustard seed of faith. That's why the author says they pass through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. That's what the author says. And it is true that we move from individual faith to corporate faith, but it's Moses who rallies the despairing people. If you're still in Exodus 14, look at verses 13 and 14. But Moses said to the people, Don't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. You see, there's no one, because they are in this rock, in this hard place, there is God sovereignly, intentionally, providentially at this point did that to put them in that situation so that they once again would understand there is nowhere to go, no place else to go, no one to trust but him. Deliverance belongs to the Lord, they have seen, and the battle belongs to the Lord. That is the point here. And so the people with their meager faith respond in faith. It's not like the corporate motto, which actually I kind of like in a business sense, carry the wounded and shoot the stragglers. No. Here, all of them are brought together. Kind of like in first, yeah, <laughs> give a free courtesy chuckle on that one. Like uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, one believing member of a household sanctifies the entire household, consecrates the entire household. One believing mother, one believing wife, one believing father, one, believing, one believer in one household, even filled with unbelievers. That house, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 14, is set apart by God. That's kind of the dynamic we have here. And even their meager faith is, again, in response to the word of God. It's in response to the revelation of God. Uh, Scroggy said, if we fail to go forward when God says go, you can't remain stationary. Point being, you're either going forwards or you're going backwards. And their faith here of the people, their meager faith, is their willingness to go forward in response to God's word. Pick it up in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about in the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Beloved, that is their faith represented here. The application here, the application for us leaders is we don't have to worry about how God is going to, metaphorically speaking, how God is going to part the waters. We merely need to be responsible and obedient to stretch our staff out over the water. The application for the people, again, metaphorically speaking, you don't have to worry about how God's going to part the sea. You just have to worry. We just have to worry as the people of God whether or not we're going to go out and march boldly, which is actually interesting. Back in verse 8 of Exodus 14, they were marching out boldly from Egypt before their fear and their cowering set in. But what we have here is salvation and judgment at the same time. At the end of verse 29 in Hebrews 11, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned, even as we just read at the end of Exodus 14. Uh, Literally, the Greek word drowned, they were swallowed up, they were devoured. Uh, In Exodus 14, 28, we just read, not even one of them remained. The uh, great divide... It's a geological term. The Great Divide runs from the Bering Strait down to the Sea of Magellan, from the northern part of Alaska and North America all the way down to the southern tip in Chile of South America. And the Great Divide is basically the hydrological divide of the North American and South American continent. Point being that water that falls on the east side of the Great Divide, a water drop that falls on the east side, will end up in the Arctic Ocean up in the north or in the Atlantic Ocean for most of North America and South America. If it falls on the west side of the Great Divide, it ends up in the Pacific Ocean. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. Beloved, in the same way, the example, what, what, why did the water stand up for Israel? According to Hebrews, by faith. That's from the human perspective. Divine sovereignty, of course, and human responsibility. Why did the waters collapse on the Egyptians? No faith, unbelief. It is one or the other. Faith and presumption are two different things, and the critical distinction between the two could hardly be dramatized more effectively than this situation and the opposite fortunes of the Israelites and the Egyptians. You see, what is for the believer the way of life may also be for the unbeliever the way of death. The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. We can think of Simeon's prophecy over baby Jesus in Luke chapter where Simeon, old man Simeon that had been looking for the consolation of Israel and realized that he was seeing this baby that would be the realization of God's promise to not just Israel, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he rightly said, Simeon said, that he said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Or the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are, we, beloved, are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from life to life, and to the other, an aroma from death to death. Who is adequate for these things? Again, what held the water back for Israel was faith. What 
crushed the Egyptian army. The reason they drowned was no faith. Jonathan Edwards, in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I love how Finley, I'm taking all, I'm taking all those amens from Finley. They're encouraging me. They're galvanizing me in my sermon. I love it. Jonathan Edwards, in his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said this, The wrath of God is like great waters held back for the moment. If God should withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and come upon you with omnipotent power, end quote. Beloved, but, dear friend, even a meager faith rescues, even a meager faith saves you from that drowning torrent of the fierce wrath of God. So there's a meager faith. The second faith that we encounter as we go to our second verse 30, again, that two-word combo at the beginning, by faith, it's a courageous faith. The meager faith that rescues, this is a courageous faith that conquers. And what the author does here is he moves from the book of Exodus to the book of Joshua. He resumes, he skips over 40 years of, of Israel, of the first generation out of the Exodus, wandering in the wilderness in unbelief. Even he skips over, the author of Hebrews skips over what he cited previously back in chapters 3 and 4. That the majority of that first generation of Israel, that even had the meager faith, that they, that meager faith we just read of here, that for their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in a journey that would normally take 11 days walking, that they were wandering in unbelief, in disobedience. So the author cited that back in Hebrews 3 and 4, but here he jumps over 40 years, and he jumps over to a new generation, the second generation out of the Exodus. Moses is gone, Joshua, Yeshua is the new leader. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The mighty story of Jericho, we read in Joshua chapter 2, verse 6. Jericho was strategically located on the eastern flank of Canaan, on the eastern flank of the land, part of the land that God had promised to Israel, which was Canaan. So it was a strategic location. So as such, it was a mighty city with massively fortified walls containing a massive mighty army to protect the country and to protect the city but to protect the country in this strategic location it was about a half a mile march around the city to give you an idea of its size and this is even one of the cities that had previously scared the first generation spies remember there was a first generation of spies that went into the land that God had promised and all of them brought back a bad report back an evil report except for Caleb and Joshua. So, for example, in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33, we read this about this bad report. Numbers 13, 32. So they gave out, so again, this is the first generation out of Israel, spies that went into the promised land. They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And there also we saw the Nephilim, 
The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. That was part of the spies, those spies, except for Caleb and Joshua, their bad report, their unbelief, their disbelief, which was like a contagion, and it infected the rest of the nation. Again, that's why, part of the reason why they wandered for some 40 years. So Jericho was a fearsome place, but there was a new generation. Turn now, if you want to, to Joshua. God, as Moses has moved on, and as God is putting the mantle of leadership on Joshua, three times in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, what does the Lord say to Joshua? Be strong, be courageous. Be strong and courageous, verse 6, for you will give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, verse 7. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I love Joshua. I love Joshua. We'll, we'll come back in a bit to chapter 2 where spies go into the city-state of Jericho and they're entertained by a woman named Rahab. But we'll come back to that in a bit. But then in chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan. In the same way that God parted the Red Sea for Moses leading the nation of Israel, so now, so now he parts the Jordan with Joshua leading the people. And then as we say, we, as we uh, said before, he raised his Ebenezer, so to speak. Chapter 4, memorial stones were taken from the Jordan as a commemoration of the great work that God has done. And then there's some medical procedure that takes place in chapter 5 because they didn't quite get around to being observant to the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, namely circumcision. So they had to take care of a little business in chapter 5. And then early one morning, Joshua wakes up and he sees a fearsome-looking warrior in the middle of the river, on the other side of the river. And Joshua comes up to him, and I love what he says. He says, verse 13 of Joshua 5, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, bring it on. That's the NIV. Uh, New American Standard says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14, he said, no. And again, point being there, I love it. Joshua is a courageous leader. He wants to know this man here with his sword. And again, he's surely, clearly a very fearsome looking man. Joshua, because Joshua heard God's command, be strong and courageous three times. Joshua, by God's grace and mercy, is strong and courageous. And a normal person would look at this Again, this whatever kind of glorious figure of a warrior would quake in fear, but not Joshua. But, verse 14, the man says, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. That sound familiar at all? 
Yes, Moses. Joshua, it's, it's the same Lord. Unique situations, but the same Lord acting in the same way. Joshua, the man of courage, beloved, what we see unfold here with the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is Joshua, the man of courage, inspires the people. Whereas their fathers, the first generation, did not trust and refused to obey, this second generation, they trust and obey. It's Eager obedience, ready obedience, immediate obedience, first on the part of Joshua, then on the part of the people. And beloved, faith obeys even when it sees nothing happening. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. And you will march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests will carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you'll march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be the word of God to Joshua, to the people of Israel, through Joshua continues. It will be on that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. You see, from a military standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, this is ludicrous. What, what, you know, go there and then march around once in silence and go back home and, and go back to your camp and camp out. And the next morning, do the same repeated six times. Then on the seventh day, march around seven times in silence and then... When the priests blow the trumpet, shout out. I, I mean, science is a wonderful thing. There's been some pastors, some commentators that try to come up and suck some things out of their sum that maybe they shouted at the resonant frequency of the mortar or something goofy. No, this is both 29 and 30 is a New Testament, affirma New Testament affirmation of Old Testament narrative and Old Testament miracles. This is a miraculous work on the part of God. And the one thing Joshua and these Hebrew believers at the time of Joshua and the Hebrew believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to, the one thing they had to go on was the word of God. God said it, that settles it. Beloved, the word of God is not ours to question. It's not ours to negotiate. The word of God is binding. It is ours to obey. That was the case for Joshua, those people, for you and for me as well. And there is power in obeying the word of God. There's power in the preaching of the word of God. There's power in the message of Lord Jesus. There's forgiveness of sin. In the prayers of God's people, there's power. There's perseverance under trial. Beloved, that is a courageous faith, a courageous faith that conquers on the part of the people. And of course, when we read the rest of Joshua chapter 6, that's precisely what they did. And lo and behold, it unfolded exactly as God said that it would happen. And that takes us, and we'll fill in a little more details now when we come to our third verse and our final point 
in Hebrews chapter 11, when we come to verse 31, in the case going from these two examples of corporate faith back to the last example of individual faith, at least last example that stands out with a singular verse, by faith this one person. It is indeed a shocking faith. It's a shocking faith that saves. It's a shocking faith that reminds us that God, in the midst of his wrath, remembers mercy. Verse 31 of Hebrews 11, by faith, the last appearance, by faith, at except one other appearance, but not in the context here, beginning and introducing a character. By faith, Rahab, the harlot. What we have in verse 31, and even in verse 30 is, and Joshua chapter 2 through 6 is espionage, a clandestine mission, a madam, so to speak, who hides spies in her house. This is something straight out of a Robert Ludlum novel. And Beloved, we have already seen a woman as an example of faith, Sarah as an example of faith, understanding that in the sphere of faith there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. Sarah was one flesh with Abraham, and she is a matriarch of the faith, we could say. That's understandable. But the woman Rahab here is more of, shall we say, an independent example When we have looked at these examples of faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Now we look at the example again of a woman, but not just a woman of a pagan Canaanite woman. And not just a pagan Canaanite woman, but a pagan Canaanite Amorite woman. And not just a pagan Canaanite Amorite woman, a harlot, a harlot. Joshua 2. Verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now, they weren't sinning, they weren't partaking of what was going on there. They did that for an espionage, clandestine reason. We don't know for sure, but very likely they were trying to disguise themselves as Amorites. They didn't want, they were spies. They didn't go into Jericho with baseball hats saying, hey, we're spies from Israel. So that's part of the reason why they went there. That would be a location where they very easily could be hidden. And it was the king of, verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. But now we come to verses 8 and 4. This is the key. Verses 8 and 4, this is the key. It's not the strategy of how... Rahab did what she did. It's her faith. It's her belief in God. It's the fact that she had heard of 
the work of God, and she had at some level even heard the word of God, and she believed. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, watch this, this is beautiful. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted up and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I've dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Beloved, Rahab, the harlot, had a simple and basic confession. She believes in God. She believes God. More to the point, she trusts God. God. She trusts God. And even we can ask the question, why, okay, here in Joshua 2, that's her background. She's a harlot. Why, why does the author of Hebrews say Rahab the harlot? I mean, come on, I mean, you know, what about old things have passed away, new things have come in Christ Jesus? What about forgiveness? Well, how does Matthew refer to himself in the gospel? Matthew the tax collector. How does Simon, the other apostle, how is he referred to in the gospel account? Simon the zealot, Simon the assassin, Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot, Rahab the harlot. Uh, the point here, beloved, is not so much of, at all of what she was, but of how far God's grace has carried her. She shook off the grave clothes of her sin. And I love what Alistair Begg said at this point in this. By way of application uh, to his church, not to my church, I'm sure. This is what he said. How did you, how did you get your name on the list, huh? Because you were such a righteous person. You think God looked down and said, now, there's a beauty. I'd like him on the team. Wow, there's a fine girl. Come on, honey. Just the kind I'm looking for. No, he looked down and found mean, wretched, rebellious scumbags. And you see, the reason some of us are never going to get our names on the team is because we're not prepared to admit that we're mean, wretched scumbags. And if you don't like the name scumbag, Beg says, I apologize. Why don't I change it to bag of dirt? End quote. Beloved, you and I, we deserve, friend, we all deserve judgment. We all deserve the mighty torrent of God's wrath built up, the dark clouds to fall on us forever and ever in hell because of sin and because of rebellion. It's God's grace and mercy that the man, Jesus Christ, came to earth to provide a way of escape, 
to take the punishment that I deserve because of my sin and you deserve because of your sin if you are or if you would trust in Christ and have that judgment, that wrath poured out on him, on Jesus Christ, already at the cross. That is the gospel message. But back in the text, verse 31 at the end, Rahab the harlot didn't perish. She did not perish along with those who were disobedient. Uh, disobedient in the Greek, and especially the way the author uses it, is almost synonymous with unbelief. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, the author of Hebrews, when he was referring again to that first generation of Israel out of the Exodus, he says, to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Same word here. So the first generation of Israel out of the Exodus were disobedience. They were unbelieving in the wilderness. So also the people in Jericho were disobedient. They were unbelieving. This implies, mark this, that the people of Jericho, these Canaanite Amorites, they had heard also of the work of God like Rahab and they had heard the word of God and therefore it was at a sufficient level to make them culpable, to make them guilty. And this destruction and this extermination of all of Jericho is God's vengeance against a people that have been against him and opposed to him since Genesis 15, verse 16, where in the very same chapter where God cut his covenant promise with Abraham, in the very same chapter when God prophesied to Abraham that his descendants would go into 400 years of captivity in Egypt, in the same chapter where God followed it by saying, I will rescue your people, though, from Egypt. Genesis 15, verse 16, God said to Abraham, In the fourth generation, they shall return here to the promised land for, mark this, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorite. You see, God will fulfill his promise to the nation of Israel. He'll fulfill his promise to bless Israel and his promise to judge the Amorites. Israel will receive the land, but not one hour before holy providential justice requires it. The story is told of a farmer in the Midwest who disdained religion. As he would plow his field on Sunday, he would use curse words and he would scowl at Christians that would be going by the farm on their way to the worship service. One October came, and the story tells that the farmer had the finest crop that he'd ever had. It was the finest crop and harvest that the county would ever seen. And when the harvest was complete, he placed an ad in the local paper belittling the Christians for their faith. Near the end of his diatribe, the writer, the farmer, wrote, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. The response from the Christians in the community was quiet and polite, but in the next edition of the town paper, a small ad appeared reading simply, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October, end quote. Beloved, dear friend, there is reckoning coming your sin will either be paid for by you in eternity in hell or it will have already been paid for by christ as you and i as we enjoy an eternity in heaven but we finish 
Time escapes us. We finish our verse, verse 31 in Hebrews, after she had welcomed, after Rahab had welcomed the spies in peace. She didn't regard them as national enemies, but as spiritual friends. She, because she dealt kindly and fairly with them, they also dealt kindly and fairly with her and all of her household. In Joshua 6, verse 23 so the young men who were spies went in, this is at the destruction of Jericho, and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all of her relatives and they placed them outside of the camp of Israel. You see, Rahab believed in the true and living God. So for Rahab, God said it and that settled it. And when she had opportunity to demonstrate her faith, when she had the opportunity to demonstrate her allegiance to God and by virtue of that, her allegiance to the people of God, even at the great risk to her life. If the king, if the mayor of the city-state had gotten wind of and found out what she had done, she would have been executed for trees and possibly her entire household. So that was at a great cost. But in verse 25 of Joshua 6, Rahab the harlot in her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She became the mother of Boaz, according to, she appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew. She became the mother of Boaz, and in the chronological listing in Matthew, the great-great-grandmother of King David, and therefore an ancestress of King Jesus. Rahab, dear friend, is a model of saving faith for both men and women, a woman whose faith was living and acceptable to God. That's why she is cited and held up by the author of Hebrews, and also by James. In James chapter 2, where James is bringing out the great distinction from a mere professed faith that is not a truly possessed faith. That's a dead faith that doesn't save, but a true possessed faith. We are saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. A true faith that is a possessed faith will be demonstrated in good works. And the two examples James uses is Abraham and Rahab, a revered patriarch and a reformed prostitute. And here in Hebrews 11, she's numbered among the divinely ordained great cloud of witnesses that the author will bring to you and to me by way of application when we get to chapter 12. And just a quick word on this. Many people would love to chase down a rabbit hole of Christian ethics. So was it okay for Rahab to lie was it okay for her to lie? Is it okay? And they always use Nazis as, as examples. Is it okay to lie to the Nazis? But, beloved, the point here is neither James nor the author of Hebrews even mentions the lie. Joshua mentions the lie because that's part of the historical narrative. And God could have saved the nation in some other way, but God sovereignly allowed it to be saved in that way. So the point here is the emphasis, even the emphasis in Joshua is Rahab's confession. It's not her falsehood, it's her truth. It's not her lie. The emphasis is on her simple confession of faith. The text in Joshua, James, and Hebrew neither endorses nor rebukes. And 
I've got thoughts, but I won't say them here. I'll just tell you two things. Number one, thou shalt not lie. Number two, the spies didn't go into the land with baseball hats saying, hey, I'm from Israel. So I'll leave that to your consideration. And we'll conclude in this. As we were going through these lists of examples, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, who's next? I mean, it's easy. We're going from Exodus to the book of Joshua. Joshua. Why Rahab? I mean, Joshua and Rahab, two opposites, one faith. Some of us here grew up camped right next to the narrow gate. Some have come from a very far way off. Some grew up in a Christian home. Some grew up in the devil's home. Some are from the pew of the church. Some are from the gutter of the world. Some of us grew up religious and lost. Some of us grew up irreligious and lost. In this case, Joshua and Rahab, one is on the Bible's first ballot hall of fame. One comes from the world's, from a background of the world's first ballot of hall of shame. The main point here, beloved, is no one is beyond the saving grace of God. And very often, not always, very often, great sinners make great saints. Because God is a great savior of a great sinner like me. And the church is enriched by Joshua's and Rahab's together in one body. And dear friend, there are no fence sitters. Jesus said you are either with me or against me. It is one or the other. You either are in God's army or Satan's army. There's no spiritual Switzerland. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for... The power of your word, the power of your word preached even through a fallible, frail man like me. The power of your word read in its purity as you've given it to us here. The power of your word spoken directly with direct revelation to Joshua that was then passed on to the people. And the power of your word that was heard even in the minutiae, the little minute portions that this woman Rahab heard and believed. Lord, help us to believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.